to the breaking news, the jury has reached a verdict. When folks say defund the police. Michael Chauvin, defendant. Verdict, find the defendant guilty. Welcome back to Law by Mike on the mic. We have a guest today, EJ, former deputy sheriff here in California. EJ, uh, I know you told me that you have some stories to share with our audience. Uh, but before we get into that, you know, tell us a little bit about your background, your family's background. Sure, yeah. Thank you for having me. Uh, the reason I got on the law enforcement to begin with was my grandfather was in law enforcement for 35 years. And I just saw his career and the changes that he made. Uh, my grandfather actually was the first one to ever promote a female in the history of law enforcement. Wow. And that went on to become Cagney and Lacey. Hmm. So he had actually made a lot of changes in the world. And I looked up to him for it. And my dad, my dad was in law enforcement for 33 and a half years. And I wanted to have a job that I could be proud of. I wanted my kids to brag about me the way that I bragged about my dad, the way that I bragged about my grandfather. Because I knew if I went into a crowd of people, I mean, some of them might have gotten a ticket from one of my family members. <laughs> That's always a possibility. But still, it's, a, it's an honorable profession. So for me, I knew that not only was it a solid career choice, it was kind of a safe career choice because they always need cops in the world, I mean, let's face it. But I, I just I knew that it was something that I would always love to do because I would love to help people. And I would love to just make a difference in someone's life. So you're from three generations of cops. Correct. And you're here today to share some stories about how cops are not always that job that you looked up to, right? Correct. I mean, just so we're clear, there are still a lot of great cops out there. Absolutely. I think some of them, as time goes on, are starting to finally disappear, if you will, off of the force. But my personal experience firsthand, I got to see exactly what people were talking about. Uh, for me, uh, to get into how I became a cop, the economy was kind of strange in 2009 mm -hmm. and 2008 going into 2009. So I was thinking, what better to be than a cop? Like everyone always needs cops. So I applied and I'm talking like thousands of people are in line. I mean, it looks, it looks who, who wouldn't want to be a cop? Yeah. All these people are here. Everyone just wants this position. So I was going to fight for it. But you go in with so many people in line, you don't think you're ever going to get it. Long story short, I go through months and months and months of background, you know, training, testing, you name it, and then finally find out, boom, I get to go to the academy. So excited. So join the academy, go through the academy, probably some of the best trainers, the best people you ever meet in your life, because they teach you about ethics. They teach you how to be a good person, how to do everything the right way. Mm -hmm. They tell you what's the wrong way. I mean, and everything's very just clear because they're laws. It's things that are written, right. you know? And we're talking about just black and white. Like, this is how things are. And there is no in-between. And it's very simple when you're going through. And I remember there were a couple of incidents during the academy where people we'd work with that actually weren't a part of the academy staff uh, weren't great people. And I at one point brought that up. It didn't, it didn't grow out, go well for me. And that person was actually no longer allowed to teach at the academy ever again. So graduate the academy and I start working in the jail. And there's two different shifts. There's an A shift and a B shift. It's just times and days that people mm -hmm. are working. So I start off working on the A shift and I'm thinking I've got my life set. All those thousands of people I just went up against 38 of us graduated. Mm -hmm. I mean, wow. we're talking about a very slim margin here. There was very few people that actually made it. And there was one girl, I was very proud of her. She did a really good job. But there were some things that I always questioned. Mm -hmm. Going back to that one girl that graduated, she was great. She was one of my favorite people. But I always thought something about her and her training officer. I always just saw something was a little strange. Mm -hmm. And 
we had questioned it a couple of times. Everyone always told us, nah, nothing. You guys are crazy. Nothing ever happened. Well, they're married now. <laughs> so her training officer and her person that helped her get through the academy and then helped her become an officer is now her husband. No. So that made me question, you know, did she actually make it? I don't know. And I'll never know that. And that's one of the things that kind of bothered me. But, you know, let it go. So working on the A shift, I had a great trainer. Trainer taught me how to do everything right. We would get into, you know, scuffles from time to time. They would teach us how to do things the right way. Make scuffles sure. with inmates? Scuffles with inmates, absolutely. Gotcha. Scuffles with inmates. You know, and when you're bringing people in from booking, things would happen because people are drunk and they have no idea what they're doing. Sometimes they wake up the next day and they don't even know why they're there. Right. So where things got interesting for me is I get approached by my, um, my senior officers at that point, and they asked me if I would, uh, well, they kind of voluntold me to be fair, but they asked me if I would switch over to the B shift because we had one of the other officers that just wasn't doing well. He right. wasn't succeeding as, a, as an officer. And I was kind of curious. I'm like, well, if you don't mind, I, mean, I know you can't tell me much, but can you tell me a little bit? Like, well, you know, this is kind of common knowledge, but he, um, he recently got in trouble because he had left his locker open and his gun was in there. No. And his officers went and took everything and they hid it from him. So instead of just helping him out, locking it and say, hey, next time be more careful, I need you to, you know, pay attention, they hid it. Right. So... His commanding staff all got written up for it. Right. It was also like a hazing thing. In exactly. Sense, right? And yeah. you know, on the A shift, everything was, was just great. You know, I didn't experience any of that. So yeah. they asked me if I'd trade shifts. I'm like, yeah, you know, that's okay. Because one of the guys I had graduated with, I went to, uh, we carpooled every day. Because mm-hmm. we lived next to each other. I'm like, you know what? Absolutely. Let's just do it. No, the guy that I was trading with, we're about the same size. I'm not a big guy. He wasn't a big guy. When we were in the academy, it would actually be paired up with him. So, you know, we'd fight. And we were exactly the same. So I kind of figured, you know what, if they're giving him crap, they're probably going to give me crap too, but I can handle it. Right. You know, so it is what it is. Let's go. So I get transferred in. I'm in a different world now. Now I feel like I'm back in high school. Hmm except everyone now is a bully and there's just no way to get away from it and things were so strange down to like you'd literally be sitting on a bench and some guy would like straddle you naked and be like hey sweetheart and you're like whoa hold hold, hold, dude please get off and those things were every day so every day was a hazing wow every single day so I started to kind of reflect back on everything they had told me and so about the officer that I had switched shifts with. Mm-hmm. And it was starting to kind of show itself to me. I'm like, yeah, wow, this is, uh, this is all true. Yeah. And I had a training officer on the previous shift who did a great job, showed me the right way to do everything. And now I had kind of like a new one on this new shift. And things were just completely different. And if I felt like if you were in a training facility, if you're in a jail, which is what we were working in, the training should be exactly the same because the laws are all the same. Yeah, consistency. There should not be a difference. But we're talking about our senior officers are saying, if any of these guys walk towards you, we have these little sticks that we would use to touch the doors that prove that we would check the cells. Mm-hmm. He's like, I want you to just put this across their face and show them who's boss. Wow. It's like, you need to do that every single time or those guys won't take you seriously. Anybody gives you back talk, you make sure you make them stop talking. And... Yeah, that's kind of not what I signed up for. Right. You know, I'm trying to make a difference. I get that we start in the jail, but it doesn't mean that I can't make a difference in the world with the people that are incarcerated. Right. So it was hard to, to take that on with a completely different mindset. So as days goes on, I'm trying to decipher, like, what, what's the right way? And like, I feel like the right way was my first shift that I was on. And... I'm just trying to deal with every day. My senior deputies at the time come to me and start really starting to harass me over every single little thing. Like, did you get all those doors over there? Like, mm. check them to make sure that the inmates were inside of them. Like, well, that's not the section that I'm currently working in. Like, all right, well, we'll talk about that later. And they'd pull me aside and they'd scream at me. I'm like, and that's not my section. I'm not watching that section. Right. Like, well, then you should have watched out for whoever it was. Mm. Like, 
uh, I don't know how to help you. I, I'm sorry, I, I can't get, can't help you. So as things progressed, I started to notice that there were things that just didn't, didn't jive well. Um, we have a lot of jail politics. Right. And in the jail politics, we had had uh, our fourth floor, we had had four sections in each floor. So we got up to uh, G. And we had a section where we had started to house all just black males. Mm-hmm. And all the black males. And this is because of jail politics. And this was honestly because they wanted to make sure that everyone was safe. Because at that point, whites, blacks, Hispanics, they were not getting along because of politics. So right. I get that there was some good intentions behind it. Mm-hmm. But where things went really, really wrong for me, where things really started to become obvious that there was corruption, if you will, I'm in an elevator with two gentlemen, two black uh, males, uh, the red banners, the, the bands that they're wearing are classification bands. The red means that they're violent. So I'm in an elevator and I'm bringing them upstairs. And somebody who's downstairs radios to the fourth floor saying, I've got two red, black males for the N-Quad. We don't have an N-Quad. So I'm in the elevator with these two gentlemen, and I'm, I know what they just said was racial slur. Right. I know what they're going after. So they just kind of look back at me, and I'm trying to de-escalate the situation. Oh, they could hear that. Oh, they heard it. Oh, it was wow. on my walkie-talkie on me. They heard it loud and clear. So I escort them in, and they turn around. And they're like, whoop, because they could see. Right. I just put them with a whole bunch of other black people. Yeah. And now they knew what the traffic was, what they heard on the radio, and what that meant. Right. And that, for me, was like, ugh, who? I don't know what the point of that was. Like, no. why, why would it was we pure do, racism. That's what it is. Pure racism. Yeah. So I would go back downstairs, and... I don't know who said it, but no one took, took ownership of it. So I'm working booking, and probably like right around Christmas time, we have somebody that comes into booking. His name John Doe, of course. Yeah, like, like that's his real name, right? <laughs> yeah. And he's kind of getting a little violent. He's not really saying much. He didn't say anything to the arresting officer who was a different department. It wasn't our, wasn't our department. And I finally kind of caught on guy's not saying anything like what do you want me to do my sergeant walks up behind me and says hey this is actually a high-ranking official's son um he was here for grand theft auto and dwi but we're gonna let him go because we've we've been told to like don't the victims have something to say on that yeah they said we've already talked to them they're not going to press charges like so what's my what's my role here they're like well we're gonna just let him go. Okay. I don't know what to say about that, but uh, okay. So I'm starting to lose faith right. in the system. And it started to kind of bring back things that happened from when my dad was a cop, things I started to remember. Uh, I had actually volunteered for a resource center mm-hmm. for the sheriff's department. And we had had... It was, a, it was a nice little facility. At the time, we didn't have computers really for them to type in the vehicles, so they had to stop and they had to write reports. Mm-hmm. Well, some of our equipment had gone missing, but we found it in a deputy's garage. Wow. Not, no charges were pressed. Nothing happened. My mom comes in one day and walks in on a male and a female deputy, and they're engaged in intercourse in uniform while on duty. Wow. And my mom leaves. My mom is, shortly after that, she got a really bad ear infection and she gets put on leave. So she gets a phone call and says, I need you to come to the station right now. If you don't come, you're fired and maybe more we'll see. So they put her in an interrogation room for five hours. Interrogation room. This is a, she actually works for the department too. Right. And they just put this employee in an interrogation room for five hours, no water, nothing, and just let her sit there for five hours. And they never asked her any questions. People came by later and just said, you don't talk about that kind of stuff. So just to F with her. Just to mess with her. They, they wanted them, they wanted to make sure that they knew, you don't talk about this stuff. When this stuff happens and you know about it, 
you leave it alone. Do cops do, in your experience, have you seen that done to non-cops all the time? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, even as far back as when my sister was a, a she worked for the Explorers. So it, it's a volunteer program. Mm -hmm. And she was on a cruise to Mexico. And one of the high-ranking officials had raped a girl. And they decided that no laws were broken because it was in international waters. So my sister tries to say something because it was another deputy's daughter who had happened to. Right. And they were forced to drop it. They said, don't make this anything. You, got, you can't make this anything. So a deputy approached my sister and said, you know you're not supposed to do this. And she's no longer a part of the Explorer Academy after that. Your sister? My sister. Because of what happened, because she had mentioned that something had happened. And what, was, there, was there veiled threats beyond just losing you know, the opportunity in the Explorer thing or losing your job as a cop? Veiled threats that something could be even worse? You know, it was never said directly. It was always implied. Right. But it was implied enough to the fact that she moved down to San Diego. So your health, so your health and life could be in, say, in, in jeopardy. Completely. Because wow. the people that are supposed to take care of you you don't necessarily know what their motives are. Yeah, and it's, it's a scary thing, right? Because, you know, officers of the peace, right, uh, you expect them to be holding up the law. And right. if they're the ones that are supposed to enforce the law and they're bending the rules, what do you do when you're worried? Right, exactly. And when I worked in the jail, uh, I had various supervisors. Uh, when somebody would come in as a fresh arrest and booking, we always had to search them. And if you found anything, you'd have to put it into evidence and you'd have to write a de pretty detailed report. Mm -hmm. I had one set of supervisors that whenever we'd find something, they're like, just flush it. Just to give it to me and I'll flush it. And I'd always ask them, like, why don't we just put it into evidence? Like, well, I know it's not a lot, but aren't we supposed to still put it in evidence? Yeah. Like, I, I guess if you want to. And one set of supervisors for me, I had the guy walk up and take it from me. And I'm like, okay. Like, what am I going to do? You're my commanding officer. Why am I supposed to stop you from doing that? Right. So he leaves and he goes upstairs. So about an hour later, he comes back and he brings me into my sergeant's office and say, he sits me down and he's writing me up. And I'm like, what are we doing here? He's like, you didn't have control over this evidence. Like, you're my commanding officer and you took it from me. He goes, right, but it's been over an hour. Why didn't you come get it from me? I'm like, you're my commanding officer and we're inside of a building. You, you went to lunch. What was I supposed to do? Yeah. So luckily that didn't go anywhere, but it still it's like, it was very clear to me at that point that I was at risk. Like somebody somewhere did not want me to be there anymore. Yeah. It sounded like, it sounds like you were kind of like the targeted, like you were the, the boy scout, you know, right. like the one trying to follow all the rules. And exactly. once enough people got, you know, word of it, they wanted you out of their clique. Exactly. And recently in the news, there were talks about like gangs and cliques and affiliations that people had started inside of different county jails right. and, and sheriff's department. Totally true. Yeah. Totally true. And you know, not everybody's initiated into them because they want to know if they can trust you first. Right. And if they know that you are on the up and up, you're on the out. Yeah. And that's one thing that's really kind of damaging for a career is if you know that you're a really good person and you're not going to do what's wrong, except bribe, except money, then you're out. I mean, one of the people that taught me how to shoot that I looked up to mm -hmm. recently was fired for stealing drugs from Jeez. the, uh, you know those boxes that they, they, they get rid of all the um, expired medications? Right, right. He, he'd been stealing from that for years. And that was somebody that I had really looked up to. And it kind of just, it's... It was devastating for me morally because I really thought he was a really good person. I mean, I'll admit maybe he had some problems, but that doesn't change the fact that as an officer, you're supposed to be of the highest moral, you know, and I, I don't know how to just, I don't know how to, how to get past that, you know? So he, um, he quit before he got fired and I've never been able to look at him the same. So... Going back to working in the jail, um, there was a couple times during training where they wanted me to do certain things that I wasn't comfortable doing. Uh, one of them was at the night shift, they wanted us to play tag. So 
You're talking about a bunch of inmates sleeping next to each other. Some of them are in day rooms where there's like 40 people next to each other. Wow. Um, some of them are just you know, two people next to right. each other. We're supposed to be going through. Now at that time, you had to hit a button on every single door to prove that you were there, but it only had to be done once on, not on an hour, but during the hour. So if you did it at the beginning of the first hour and at the end of the second hour, you could go for a really long time. Right. So they would play games all day long. And it would be hide and go seek, it'd be tag, I mean, you see who can go the furthest on the roof. And we even had people that worked for uh, dispatch that knew part of what was happening, but not all of it. But we would have people in patrol that did what they would call the Vegas run. You had to take your patrol car, drive to Vegas, go in front of the Las Vegas sign, take a picture of it with your patrol car, and get back before your shift was over. Wait, hold on. But yeah, how... Isn't Vegas five hours from here? Yeah, not when you have red lights and sirens. Oh my gosh, that's insane. But that happened a lot, and a lot of people participated in it. And, I mean, it's people that still work today that will know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of them have retired, some of them have not. But, I mean, to think about the fact that you're on a 12-hour shift and you just went to Vegas and back, what did you provide? Nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. If anything, you made your entire area that you were supposed to be protecting, you endangered them. Right. Because when something hits the fan and you're not there for it and you just say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm on a break. How long is your break going to last? Now, luckily, we have trackers in the cars. and Those kind of things can't happen. Mm. But that's why. Yeah. yeah. You know? So, working in the jail. I have a bunch of people that are now no longer on my side. Right. I'm feeling pretty alone. Um, working in uh, medical housing on level two. One of my... Uh, so these are for the inmates that have medical issues? Correct. So they can't be in their cell? So they, some of them have crutches, so they can't be with other people because it can be used as a weapon. No. Some of them might have anything that might be communicable, so they can't be with everybody because it could transmit. Mm. So I'm working in special housing, and they're telling me that there's a guy in the second cell that has, he, not, they only, they're only allowed to shower on odd days unless there's a medical reason that they're allowed to shower every day. Hmm. So this guy says, hey, you know, can I get my shower? So I tell him, yeah, no problem. Let me, uh, let me go make sure everyone's taken care of because we have to feed all the inmates and make sure that they're taken care of. So one of those officers that had been harassing me kind of catches wind. I know he knows that I've talked to other people about the fact that there's a problem between me and the supervisors. Yeah. You catch this wind of it. And I see him go over and he's talking to the guy for probably like 10, 15 minutes. And I can't hear him. I have right. no idea what he's saying. I couldn't even tell you. And I have other things to worry about too because I've got a whole bunch of inmates plus I'm helping in segregated housing which is where we held all like the really bad inmates. The ones mm -hmm. that were accused or found guilty of the really bad crimes. Right. Because my jail was mostly people that were still on trial. So, he leaves, and probably within the hour, I go back over, open the door, and this guy just starts wailing on me. And now, I'm out. I, have, I don't remember any of it. There's blood everywhere. I have no idea what's going on. I, I remember him, I thought he was falling. And I remember putting my hand down because he had crutches. Yeah. So I thought he fell. Then I remember kind of unconsciously checking my teeth and then I remember coming to thinking I've got to take care of this guy or I'm or I'm, I'm in big trouble I have, I, have, I have nurses and doctors up here yeah something bad's gonna happen right so I walk over I pepper spray him and I jump on his back and I handcuff him and you know I'm bleeding pretty bad and it's I'm not I'm not okay I can tell I'm not okay but I'm I went through my training and my training actually helped me through it and I recently told one of my uh, training officers that I was with the academy with that I think he actually personally saved my life mm -hmm. because I could hear him kind of like talking to me through it, the whole thing. So my backup finally arrives and they lift me off of him. They, uh, they put him in the cell. I get transported to the hospital and I don't get a lot of information at first, but I get told that I'm not gonna be able to go back for a couple of days. Mm -hmm. So I'm off for a couple of days. And I go back and I have just even like, my experience gets even worse. And I finally start to talk to one of my sergeants. I'm like, hey, you know, things are just not okay here. I, 
I really need help. I need somebody to come see what I see. I, I'm, I'm, this is this is me reaching out to you. Please, like, I don't know what to do. Right. Like, I know I'm new here. I know I'm green, but I, I, I can't, I can't do it. The reason that I was brought to this shift was because somebody else was already having a problem. Right. I, I can't continue this. This has been months now. So he says, do me a favor and write that down and bring that to me. And we'll go from there. I'm like, okay, that's fine. So I come to work the next day and my sergeant calls me into his office and he hands me a write-up. And I'm like, well, what's this? He said, well, the way you handled when you were attacked in the jail, you could have opened that door differently. Wow. Like I could have opened the door differently. Like, huh. So I, I get injured and you're now giving me a write-up for the way I opened the door. Mm-hmm. That's what you're telling me. Yep. He's like, yeah. I'm like, okay. So I, to a different sergeant, hand my letter that says exactly what happened, mm-hmm. how I've had people take evidence, how, how people have had evidence withheld so that it would never make it. So if the arresting officers who wanted to, make, to have it be a part of the trial, it's not going to go anywhere. This stuff has now disappeared. Mm-hmm. So I hand him my piece of paper that just lists every single thing that's ever happened that I thought should change or should never have happened. Right. And he looks at it, and he puts it on the table. He looks at me and says, I want you to go home and take this with you, and I want you to think about this. Jeez. Because this is really going to impact you. This is going to impact your career and your future. That's absurd. It's going to impact you more than it's going to impact the people that you're writing about. And I need you to really think if this is worth it for you. So I take it and I go home, come back to work the next day. My officers are well aware apparently now of, of course. what I've done. They're now treating me very differently, but not in a good way. Yeah. Not in a good way. Uh, now, if there's people that are withholding something inside of the rectum and we have to find out what type of drugs they are, they're now having me go find out what type of drugs they oh, are. Gosh. Whatever the worst part of the job was, right. they're now having me go do it. And it was kind of a hazing, but you know what? It's part of the job, so I just left it alone. And now suddenly, those two people that I had written about are now transferred off of that shift. Mm. And I now have two new training officers. I don't know why. Mm. I'm just assuming maybe somebody actually listened to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I start hearing chatter, and it's all about me specifically. And i like, okay, well, yeah, no, I, I did get hurt, and I'm okay. I'm, I, I think I can make a comeback. Those injuries end up being career-ending, I found, because I was never able to make it, make it back. Uh, but shortly before I was able to turn in all my paperwork for medical retirement, I go through days and days of hell. I get brought into the commander's office, and the commander hands me a piece of paper. And she says, we're giving you a probationary dismissal. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you the truth, I didn't know what that meant at first. Yeah, I don't know what it means. Tell us. So she was firing me. And I looked at her and said, for what? She said, well, that's the thing is we're not going to tell you because we don't have to. Wow. Like, we don't have to have a reason. And I brought that up. I'm like, so how is it that I get injured and within 10 days of my injury, you have decided that I'm no longer worthy of working here. And even though my injury has ended my career, they don't care. Hmm. And... Next thing you know, my backpack is being picked up for me and I'm being escorted out. Nothing. You know, my career is now completely over. Wow. So I've, I've gone through a lot as a deputy in that, that fashion. Growing up, I saw a lot of things that were happening the way that they shouldn't have happened. Um, for instance, there was a time when I got pulled over and I got pulled out of my car. I got put against my car. I was cuffed. My car was searched. I was roughed up a little bit, and then I was put on put onto the, um, the sidewalk, and they asked me questions, and you know, they never asked me if they could search my car, but you know, I, I grew up in law enforcement, and I trusted these people, right. so I didn't think anything of it. 
So I've now gone through that, and this person who pulled me out of the car asked me for my license. We haven't even gotten to that point yet. Mm -hmm. So he asked me for my license. I had a lowered Mustang that was a little loud. That was the reason, but he didn't Mm -hmm. tell me. So he asks me, uh, you know, sees my license. He's like, is this your dad? And he says my dad's name. I'm like, yeah. He goes, oh, you should have told me that. I wouldn't have pulled you up. I would, this would have been over a long time ago. Oh, shit. I said, that, why, why would that have made a difference? Like, if you were doing your job the way that should've. you should have, that should not have changed anything. Yeah. That should not have changed a single thing. And it, it was heartbreaking. And one of the things we're taught going through the academy is to be very aware that there is a racial divide. Mm-hmm. It's true. There's a racial divide. Um, my best friend, the, the, the best man in my wedding, is a black gentleman. And you know, he's one of my personal heroes, this guy I look up to. And when we'd go places, I'd see that he would get treated by the police very differently than I would get treated. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't because people knew my dad was a cop. It's just he'd get pulled over for nothing. And we'd be driving together. My car would have some sort of modification, tinted windows, mind you, whatever. But he'd get pulled over for nothing. And he just dealt with that. Yeah. And people frequently ask me, you know, what is this racial divide? And it's funny because I, I, I talked to my friend about it multiple times. And I was able to tell him. Like, what they don't understand is that a lot of these people were brought up to believe that the police are going to hurt them. Right. And if you believe that the person that is pulling you over is going to hurt you, yes. why would you act any other way? Yeah. I mean, it made perfect sense to me. Because mm-hmm. if I had the thought that someone was pulling me over, that that person was going to hurt me, I would not be okay with it either. And then from the law enforcement side of it, you're walking up, Let's say you're not racist and you don't have any thought of that, but you walk up to someone who's obviously uneasy, obviously uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You're now switched on. Your radar switched on. You're now looking at things very differently. Right. And you're now wanting to search the car. You're both on the defense right. because of this racial divide. And it, it shouldn't exist, but it does. And that's where things escalate. You know, do you mind? Can I search your car? No. And people don't necessarily know their rights. Yeah. And that's what I try to teach them. Exactly. And there's things that people on the law enforcement side think, well, now because this person's hiding something, I now can just pull them out of the car. Mm-hmm. And that's where those lines get crossed. And it usually has to do with an emotional reaction on both sides. Mm-hmm. And that's where things go south. And it, I've seen it happen multiple times because this person was taught growing up not to trust anybody. I mean, I I liken it to my wife giving birth. My wife was absolutely positive that she was gonna give a natural birth and she wasn't gonna have any problems because everybody in her family had had a natural birth. So she was taught that if a doctor ever tells you that you're gonna have a C-section, that they're just trying to make money. Right. So when it came down to have my son, she was rushing to have a a C-section and she didn't believe it. She didn't believe it. She said, there's no way this is going to happen. This is crap. There's no way I'm not listening to you. Mm-hmm. So we finally talked her in. Like, just let's just do it. I, I understand this is not what the, the, the best idea was, but we need to just do it. Right. We go and get to C-section, find out that my son almost died. Right. And that if we had listened to the way that we were brought up, the way that we had always believed was the right thing or the, our version of it, my son would not be here today. Wow. Because we always had the mindset that the doctors were out for the money and they were never going to have our best interest in mind. My son had maybe hours, maybe maybe two hours, he said. Wow. He almost died. And that's because of the way we, we were brought up and the way that we were taught. And I think relating that back to that, we got to get over that. Yeah. It, just as a community, we have to know that we acknowledge that there's an issue but it needs to go away. It's just, it's hard in this climate. I mean, you know, with George Floyd and all the things that have been going on for decades, yeah, it's hard for someone, and I'm not even in the position to say what it feels like to be a person of color and having to deal with the cops, but certainly from what we've seen over on the news in the last year, but we all know it's been going on for decades, it's very hard to say, okay, 
Just go out there and don't be defensive. Right. Exactly. You can't. You can't unteach someone that from years and generations and generations of things that really that's how it was. Yeah. And how it is. Yeah. My grandpa was a commander and he was working for the LAPD and he was uh, one of the supervisors for the men that, that, uh, that beat Rodney King. Wow. And that's actually why he retired. Wow. Is because he didn't agree with the way things were happening and decided to get out of law enforcement. And so did they warn you, you know, you, you come from generations of police. Uh, it sounds like your grandfather saw some of the things you went through. Yeah. I don't know, did your father, well, your mother did, you told us that, your father as well. Well, what's funny is my, um, when I graduated, they had actually joked around about it. They're like, well, let's give you some stories now because we didn't think you'd make it through. Right. And I'm like, oh, thanks for your confidence. You're probably appreciate hoping. It. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, to be fair, you're going against thousands of people. It's very possible that yeah. it's not going to go anywhere. Yeah. So my dad says, okay, well, let me just tell you my side of it because, you know, he was a you know, high ranking. So he wanted me to know things that he had observed and he wanted to make sure that I upheld the good mm-hmm. because he always upheld the good. And he said, one of the things that I want you to be aware of and I don't want you to be a part of is the mantra of D-A-D, deny, I'm forgetting what it is. Let's start it over again, don't worry. Let me look it up. <laughs> Dad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What what time are we at? We're at about 36 minutes. Okay, cool. I got so yeah, so yeah. Uh, okay, I got it. Start off with and one of the mantras, right? Yeah. I think that's where you were. So one of the mantras was was dad. It was deny everything, admit nothing, and demand proof. Mm. So before body cameras it was on the burden of everybody else to prove that you were doing anything wrong. So there was nobody to supervise you remotely. So they had that DAD mantra. Yeah. And everybody got away with everything because there was what they call the good old boys club. Yep. And a lot of the people that were the original members of it are starting to retire out. So you're starting to see it less and less. But with social media being more prevalent, we're also starting to know about it more and more. Exactly. So that fuels people and it builds people's emotions because a lot of people didn't have these platforms to understand that these things ever happened or these ever existed. Absolutely, yeah. And when people say that there's racial injustice, absolutely. Yep. You know, but not everybody knows about it. So it's almost like people slowly one by one start to come to realize it and think it's new information. Yeah, yeah. You well, know? I mean, I, I, I can say none of this stuff is new information now. Has it been brought to light as publicly as it has in the last year or years? No, uh, but we all know that it's been going on for a long time. These yeah. are, like you say, good old boy clubs. Exactly. The, the way they treated you is the way they treated someone 30 years before you. Exactly. Um, but I'm, I'm curious, you know, were you, was there anyone you could fall on you know when you were dealing with all these things in the police force all this kind of corruption and bad behavior was there any other good like good person there good you know there were a lot of good people but the problem with the good people is that the good people knew that the the bad people had a lot of pull Mm. and you never knew which part of the bad the bad crew was in with any ranking official Mm. and where I personally found a problem with that is after I was no longer with the, the department, my uh, mother-in-law was actually friends with the highest-ranking official of that department, and they had spoken and said, you know what he should do is like I, I can't, you know, overrule it. It's like it is what it is. He's like just tell him to apply again in a year, <laughs> and we'll see what happens from there. So my mother-in-law has now been told this. I haven't been told this, yeah. but my mother-in-law now has this information. Yeah. So okay. So guess what? I do. I do that. Yeah, I go through all the tests. All you wanted to go through hell again. I'm I'm like I'm (laughs) like let's do this one more time, and I'm gonna show you I can do it. Yeah. So I went through all the tests, went through all the training, I passed it all, and then I'm in the hiring section, and I'm now in the part where you go talk to one of the one of the officers, and they just look through your history and talk to you about whether or not you're a good fit. I I already did it, so I I know I'm probably a good fit. (laughs) So they separate me and bring me to go talk to. Someone I was very familiar with. Uh oh. Someone that my dad had actually turned in for corruption. Oh no. 
And I found this out because I looked it up in the newspaper. Wow. I actually didn't know my dad had any part of it. Oh, man. So they sit me down, and I'm talking to her, and she says, I need you to know that I know you, I know what you're all about, and as long as I'm here, I'm never letting you come back. Wow. And that was clear, because man. her family, she hit her, her son had worked for the department. He got fired three times, I think, but she made sure he came back. Yeah. Well, they want to keep the bad in, apparently not the good. Well, nepotism was alive and well at that point. Yeah. So they made sure that their own were staying there. Yeah. You know? Well, so what, I mean, it's, it's, it's very disheartening to hear these stories, to be honest. You know, I don't want to hear these things about the police. I don't think anyone out there does. And I know this was, you know, some years ago, and we can, I mean, we all hope that the scrutiny is on the cops a lot more now, given the current events and hopefully forcing some of these bad actors out. But what, what are your tips for, for you know, young police officers that are coming in, that are confronted with this? How could, how could you have handled this any different or how could you have done anything different that maybe could have made the changes that you hoped to do but you were pushed out? You know, I think we're in the right place now where I can say I was probably too advanced as far as me speaking out. Speaking out is absolutely the right thing to do. Yeah. At that point, because of how long ago it's been, I was told the only way that I would have been able to make it through is to keep my mouth shut and lie and just go under the radar. But these days, speaking out is the right thing to do. Because if you're a part of the problem, then you're not going to fix it. You know? We all need to become the solution here. And this, this goes from from top to bottom no matter what uh you know your occupation is but especially within the police force you know there is pressure from the outside trying to change it but you can only change so much from pressure in the outside the pressure needs come come from the inside as well absolutely you know and i'm sorry that you didn't have that opportunity to do it i'm sure in t today's climate i think they would be a lot more careful with the way they treated you and pushing you out uh, because all it would take is one, <laughs> one word to the news, right? Right. I agree. Uh, funny enough, I was recently approached by someone who's still working for the department. They have a few years left, and then they're retiring. And they said, hey, you know, I, I saw you on Instagram, and I didn't know how to find you. Now, here you are. I wanted to just tell you, they were targeting you this entire time. Yeah. It's like, and then he, he was able to tell me every single event that he was aware of. And then there was chains of emails of things that they had planned out and things that they wanted to do. He said, I knew this entire time that you were on your way out and you had no idea. He said, there's nothing you could have done any differently. Once they made up their mind, they made up their mind. And he's like, I'm sorry you had to go through that. And you know, it was weird because at the time I felt so alone. Yeah. You know, Because one of the, th the first thing that happens when you become a cop is you get a lot more friends and you lose a lot of friends. Mm -hmm. you, there's a lot of people that don't like cops, so those, 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 those friends are gone. Yeah. But then you have your whole law enforcement family. Yeah. And then when you're no longer a cop, you're in a really weird spot. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that sounds like it. Well, what, what is your, I mean, you gave your advice for young cops coming through, but I guess given your experience, what can we as a society do, you know, from all aspects of, of what our jobs may be, whether you're in the police force or someone dealing with the police force on the other side, what, what, what tips do we have, do you have the, to tell people uh, when they are dealing with corrupt officers or things that they think are unfair, um, you know, uh, things the cops should definitely not be doing, but what do they do? I think the most important thing to do is listen. You know, there's a lot of people that, that do wanna fight right away people that get pulled over that want to say, I, I know what my rights are. I honestly say just go with the flow and then follow up with it afterwards. Follow up with the lawyer, right? Follow up with the lawyer. <laughs> so I, that, that brings me to one point. Actually, I don't want to interrupt you. Continue with Sorry. what you were saying. So if someone is in a situation where they feel that they're being wronged, they need to just accept the, what's happening at that point in time. We have a lot of people that will confront officers with cameras because they do this, there's the First Amendment evaluation and mm -hmm. audits and they want to do. I don't see any good coming from that. Okay. 
In fact, I don't think anyone that's doing those First Amendment evaluations and checking to see if people are following the laws, I don't think they're doing any good. Uh, I think eventually they'll just make it illegal to film so that you can't do it. I mean, it is our First Amendment right to film. We, Funny enough, we had a post come out recently where it was a viral video of someone on the sidewalk filming his son being arrested and the cops say you can't do this here right. on a pedestrian sidewalk right and uh you know tackled him and started pepper spraying him and it's com- clear violation of constitution clearly absolutely 100 uh, but there there is always that concern for people because yeah we can film the cops but how are they going to treat you right and i think like the specific situation you just gave i don't think there's anything wrong with that i think if somebody's filming like an altercation between an officer and somebody else i think that's fine the ones that I'm talking about are the ones where people walk up to police stations and will just oh. will just film, right? And there's clearly no good intention there. Yeah, you know that's it, just trying to get a rise out of people. Yeah, and then in the last person you want to get a rise out of is a police officer. Right. I can tell you that. But holding people accountable, yes, by filming them, it's it's the same thing as if their body camera recorded anyways. Right. So if somebody was recording me and they came to me and there was wrong done. I would fully expect to someone to hold me accountable, and I actually don't find a problem with that. Yeah, and I mean, there's and there's been too many instances where the body cameras magically go off at certain times. Right. Um, so it is important, I think, for everyone out there to know that you can film the co- film the cops. You should film the cops, uh, protect your rights. Just make sure you do it in um, as respectful a manner as you can. Uh, you know, keeping it plain and obvious that you are filming them, and you know, saying. I just want to film this interaction. You don't have to um, do it in a way that instigates more emotion and drama to the situation. Yeah. And and that is, and you said a really good point, which is, and I try to say this in my posts a lot, is take the fight to the court. Don't make it on the streets with the cops because if you es- it, it, you don't want to escalate the situation with a cop, you could face further charges or worse, getting beaten or death. You just don't want to escalate it then. Just let, if they're going to do things that are illegal, let it happen, fight it in court. Unfortunately, that is the process. Yeah. More often than not, people talk themselves into a ticket than out of a ticket. Yeah. And if they think they have a good reason, no one's, no one's original. Everyone's heard the reason before. Right, right. And it's not going to change the cop's mind. And so before we, we sign off, um, I know you told me before, and, and I, I like my audience to hear this, is, is that you being a, a former cop and you see my post, uh, you've told me, you know, this is actually good advice. A lot of people go, oh, you hate cops. You're giving, uh, or sorry, I shouldn't say advice. This, this is actually good legal tips. Uh, a lot of people say, oh, you hate cops. You know, you're bashing cops. And I'm just trying to teach people their rights. And, and you, I know you were telling me this outside of uh, the camera and the recording here on the podcast that, um, you know, you, in a way, kind of wish people knew some of these things. Yeah. But it's not your job. Right. The thing with your po- your posts is you're right. You know, when you post something that tells someone their rights, I think it actually helps the situation. It doesn't hurt the situation. Because what you're saying is, can you do this? Yes, you can. Mm-hmm. And if somebody knows they can do it, but they're not feeling threatened where they're not working emotionally, where you see what they call the Karens, where they're holding their phone and they're screaming at people. Yeah. You know, and they think that that video is going to make a difference. Those kind of things don't change anything. But if you calmly, cool, and collected know exactly what your rights are, just like you've you've advised people or you've talked to, however you want to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. So the way you've you know, spoken on your podcasts and the way you've spoken on your, your posts, that information that you've provided is great because you know I've I haven't seen a single one yet that I've actually disagreed with. Thanks. You know, and you're just I think it you're helping people get through what is our daily lives. Right. And it's true people are ignorant of the law and it's if they're expected to know all these things, kind of like how people are expected just once they turn eighteen then they have a job that they know are supposed to supposed to know how to do taxes. Yeah. And no one's <laughs> taught them how to do it. You're supposed That's to true. know every single law. They don't teach us in school, including the taxes part. Exactly. Uh, and, and it should be taught. And 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 that kind of brings me back around to the point is, you know, you appreciate the tips I give, but but coming from your, your cop mentality and from being a former cop, 
you, it's not your job to teach people their rights. You actually, if they don't know them, you're going to take advantage of the fact they don't know them because that's what you're trained to do, right? Yeah, one of the things they say is, you know, ignorance of the law doesn't mean you're not guilty. Right. So it's not my job to teach you. Yeah. You know, it's my job in, to uphold the law, to right. serve and protect. And if they say, yeah, search my car, yeah. it's not your job to say, oh, you could have said no. Right. Absolutely. Now, the Miranda rights are written, you know, read to you for a reason, but that's only at a certain point. Exactly. You know, but if I ask you anything, yeah, can I search your car? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> you know? Please don't anyone out there say that. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've seen people walk by and say, hey, 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 do you have, do you have, uh, do you have any search, search warrants? Do you have any tips? Do you have, a, do, you have any, uh, do you have any reason I should search you? And they're like, no, no. no. Do you mind if I search you real quick? No, go ahead. Yeah. And then they have something on them. You know? And, and, we, and I get this question a lot, too. People go, well, if you're innocent, you should just agree to being searched. And what I always give as an example is, well, do you know who was in your car? You know, if your passenger left something in there? Because what happens if, if a passenger or a guest or someone in your car left yeah. some drugs or, or, or something? You're responsible. Back? You, you're and, on the hook. And no one believes you. Right. I don't know. Somebody put that there. <laughs> somebody, somebody hid that in my jacket. So it's better to be safe than sorry is what I, what I try to tell people. Absolutely. Um, one last thing that I was just curious about talking about and whether we move this to a different point in the podcast or not is just there's a lot of commentary that going through the academy and going through the training that they train police officers to fear for their lives, to approach every car as if death is imminent. And that is why they are so aggressive. Do you feel from your training that you were kind of taught in that way or was it different? Uh, well, to be fair, my, I had some of the best training anyone could get, and my training officers specifically were amazing training officers. But when you join as a police officer at all, you're taught that every single day you go to work, when you say goodbye to your family, that that might be your last day. Mm-hmm. Growing up, when my dad would leave and go to work, I actually said goodbye to him every day, thinking I'd never see him again. Wow. So that is a mindset. The way we were trained, yes, you do have to be thinking that every single possible circumstance that you're putting yourself into could be the worst one. Because if you don't, you're complacent. Mm -hmm. So you do need to go in with a certain mindset that the worst could happen. So that does come off as aggressive with some people. It does. How could it not with some people? Mm -hmm. They go into it, you know without any sort of like almost customer service, if you will. Right. You know, they have no smile. They have no tact. They're just coming in brute force. I'm a cop. You're going to listen to me. This is the law. You listen to the law. Right. You know, and that might not be what they were taught. That might just be their personality. But you're taught to look out for yourself. Yeah. You know, you're taught to you be the one that goes home. And one of the things that's instilled in you is if there's somebody that you are going to fight or you're gonna go up against somebody, you go home. Make sure no matter what, you go home. Mm -hmm. When I got into that fight in the jail that destroyed my jaw and destroyed my career, one of the things my sergeant told me who tried to write me up said, you know that there was a fire extinguisher right there, right? He's like, you could have grabbed that fire extinguisher and bashed your skull in. He's like, at that point, you had a green light to kill that guy. Yeah. He's like, you should have done more than that. Wow. And that was that mentality of you go home and they don't. But that's not how I operated. I'm glad to hear that you didn't operate there. I'm just sad to hear that you're not there making sure other people are operating the way you uh, did and tried to change the system. Um, again, you know, for us ordinary citizens, not in the police force, is there any option for us beyond, you know, making sure that we uh, publicize, you know, any police brutality and, and corrupt situations we personally sees, see from a citizen's perspective. Is there anything else we can do? I mean, I know there, there's people running for office, right, in, uh, as sheriff or, or head of the departments, uh, but any, you know, other than using our voting rights and broadcasting corruption, is there anything else we can do? Participate in your community. Make sure you know who your police force is. Understand who your sheriff is. Understand who your police chief is. That helps a lot. Because if you're part of the community, in policing specifically, and you understand what's happening, 
But even neighborhood watch programs make a difference mm-hmm. because there's a sense of community and then you, the police will understand what your neighborhood is about. You know, if the police aren't fully aware of what's happening in your neighborhood, you could have a neighborhood that's a bad apple and they might know about that. But if the police know you individually, that helps a lot. That, it changes the world, it really does. And if you, as a citizen, can put yourself out there and interact with the sheriffs, as a lot of people have, or interact with the police department, and introduce yourself and bring them into your homes, basically, it, it can change a lot. Because like people want it right now, they're trying to humanize the badge, which I agree with. I think humanizing the badge isn't a bad thing. But also bringing it to the other side where the people from the sheriff's department and the police department also get to know the people is very important because people just look at a badge. I got in a fight one time and the guy was just staring at my badge the whole time and screaming at me. And I had him look look me in the eyes and I said, hey, can you look me in the eye and stop yelling at my badge? He goes, I don't have a problem with you. I have a problem with your outfit. I have a problem with your uniform. Well, yeah, I mean, but I mean, let me ask this though. I, I think that's that's a great point you make, and especially if you're dealing with like police liaison officers, right, or, yeah. or, or or the good police officers. But what the heck do we do about the bad ones that you had to interact with? And if they're in our communities, what can we do? Don't keep it a secret. If you know something's wrong, if you see something, say something. I like I said, I don't disagree with people recording. Because if somebody got fired for something they shouldn't have done, all that did is bring it to light. And if you see something good, also share something good. And right now there's a lot of people that are leaving police departments and sheriff's departments because they feel that they're being targeted. Because they are. And it's not just because people hate cops, because people hate cops a lot. But it's because people see wrong. People see the bad things that are happening and they do want to correct it, but they don't necessarily know the right venues to do it. Mm-hmm. If you're ever in an interaction with a cop, I'd say just cooperate yep. and handle it later. And just make sure you're safe. If there's a bad apple, you know, that's, you know that there's a bad apple in the bunch. Don't fight that person, because that person's only going to escalate it and make it worse. You've seen it recently in the news. Right. You know, and you don't want to be the one in the body bag because that bad apple is influencing other people and doesn't show up until later that that person had a problem and was bad and then they finally get fired. You're going to have those still in the department. You need to make sure that you protect yourself. So don't escalate it. If you know someone's bad, don't push it. Yeah. And there's, with the mistrust of officers, it's hard. I know when you give the tip of bring the officers into your home and meet with them, I can tell you that listeners out there are, yeah, they're not are like, hell that. no. Right. Hell no. Yeah. But, I mean, it's a good point that, obviously, if, if you can have connections with your community and police liaisons and, and, and have a, a face that they can put to a community, uh, you can personalize that community and not be just labeled as, oh, this is a bad area that we're going to... Uh, treat differently and I think that is an important point but I know my listeners out there are going to go hell no I don't want to invite cops in my place and I think that's when you know if you do see bad actors cops out there doing bad things the key is to not escalate the situation which also doesn't clue them in to the fact that you may be recording the situation or or keeping you know storing evidence to build a case against maybe an officer that you repeatedly have to deal with or just different instances of a department like you kind of experienced different instances of corruption or or bad behavior um because when people know that you're trying to do that they may um treat you even more differently or, or be smarter about hiding what they're doing and that's when you use your resources like community activist groups and news news outlets and things of that nature um and i think we fortunately have um a a, a or I wouldn't say fortunately, but at least in the reality we live in now is that people are more sensitive and aware to what what is happening than they were probably during your time. And I think um, that does benefit us in the sense that it's not going to be swept under under the rug um, like it may have been before. And um, but uh, EJ, you said you, you when we we took a quick break, but you were saying that you wanted to mention something as well. 
One of the things that uh, really made me want to talk to you today was, remember before I was telling you that person was on the B shift and I traded the A shift. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Recently, the, real, the reason that pushed me to be here is he killed himself. Oh, man. And it, you never know what people are going through. Yeah. You never know. And one of the things that I've been thinking about every day since was he made his way up the ranks and was doing really well in the department. Yeah. But you don't know what was going through his head. And the fact that I went through the academy with this guy and he's now chosen to take his life and I don't know why. I, I, I don't know. We, we haven't spoken in a long time. So yeah. I don't know what his motives were behind it. But the fact that he was in that headspace tells me that there's, there's a lot wrong right now. And it's not just with people against cops, but cops just can have their own wrong. So it's now cops against cops. It's cops against, it was a cop yeah. against himself. I mean, if, if he went through, which it sounded like anything that you had to go through, I mean, there is a factor without a doubt um, that what you went through is, is so disturbing. I can't imagine what that does to someone's psyche. Um, right. You know, and I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that. I hope that, you know, your story here today, not just the story he went through, but your story, can at least maybe make some of those bad actors have some sympathy and awareness that beyond the fact that they're destroying our, um, you know, uh, respect for the police force, they're also destroying lives of, of cops within it. Right. And it's something we never saw coming. And he was uh, a very God-fearing man. And he was somebody that would attend church every Sunday. He, was, he would sing the gospel. And he, no one saw it coming. I'm sure some people did. Yeah. But the fact that, for me, I didn't see anything on the surface also can tell me that maybe his day-to-day interacting with people maybe that was off with people as well yeah. maybe not everyone knew what he was going through so what he was going through could have completely changed the interaction with the person that he was dealing with that specific day too yeah and you know that i think about that every day you know what could have done what could we have done differently you know did the job do this to him because i don't see any other way he would have done that yeah i think his specific job and like I told you people are quitting left and right yeah I think he quit everything and it destroyed me for a long time and I just wish that as a society we would understand that for the most part I guess I have to be fair there's a reason for laws and there's a reason for constitutional rights and as long as we follow them and respect each other that we can all get along we can all cohesively exist and, and I guess that kind of brings us to our last point before we sign off here which is what do you see as the solution uh, being a former uh, officer of the law and your experience both good and bad mostly bad it sounds like uh, what is the solution for their current situation you know that's been going on for way too long, for too many decades, for you know hundreds of years, really. Um, you know of of the systemic problem with the police and and the way laws dished out and and policed. Um, what what do you think? You know, it's a top down society. We need people that are running the sheriff's department and the police department. Those that are in power that know what's going on. Those that get elected need to be the right ones that get elected because that makes all the difference in the world. Because a lot of them have their finger on the pulse, and the ones that have the finger on the pulse are the ones that need to be the ones that are running the show. That is very important. We have some people that are great candidates coming up, and they all have their own ideologies, and as long as those people can run the departments, that can make a difference. You know, Somebody does need to police the police. Yeah. Somebody needs to hold them accountable as well. That is 100% true. And if someone does it right, both sides can police each other and everyone can live happy. So I think we need better training. We need to incorporate things that happen in society into the training. 
there were recently chokeholds that were said were never used in training. They were used in every training I was a part of. Okay. So we need to be more transparent. Some departments were. Some would say that's no longer a part of the training because they would take it out because acknowledged that's something that can be a use of deadly force. So let's, let's not use that as a time to escalate. And I think that if we listen to each other, we can find a way. And I, I think with what you say, the, the thing that stands out the most for me is that a lot of, um, a lot of us can lose faith in wanting to go out and, and try to vote and, and, and you know, elect people to run the police departments when you feel like it's hopeless. But if you don't try to make the change for you and the next generations by doing that activism of changing it and, and really voting for the right people, you allow the good old boys to stay in place, the people that harassed you, that forced you out, and you allow people like EJ here to be forced out and not make the changes that need to be made. So I think that is you know, really the lesson to be taken from this so that we can all start making a change and we have to start at every level of government you know, from the top down, like you said. So e EJ, I really want to thank you for sharing your stories and sharing your insights here. And, um, you know, uh, thank you so much for coming on today. Yeah, thank you for having me.